The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, The Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Nara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Edward Sturton. A broadcaster for over 40 years, Edward Sturton has worked as a foreign correspondent for the BBC, ITN and Channel 4. He presents Radio 4's Sunday programme and presented the Today programme for 10 years. The author of eight books, his most recent, Sunday, A History of Religious Affairs Through 50 Years of Conversations and Controversies, is available now. Edward, welcome to Table Talk. Thanks for the plug. That's very kind. <laughs> we try. <laughs> we always start this podcast at the same point. Um, we like to ask our guests, what, what are your earliest memories of food? Do you mean what I actually ate first? or what Just I whatever, whatever comes to mind when, you, when you're thinking about food. And I think probably days. a great treat when we lived in Switzerland. I lived all over the place as a child. And I learned to ski. This was the 60s, so it's wooden skis and lace-up boots and all that sort of stuff. And I was young and, and quite quickly learned to ski fast. So I would disappear for the day. We'd go every weekend. We were living in Geneva. And since I didn't see my parents for, you know, morning till evening, my mum would give me a baguette stuffed with big, bitter, dark Swiss cooking chocolate. And the combination was just absolutely fantastic. It was a kind of calorific punch. And I'd find somewhere on the mountain to sit in the sun in the middle of the day, and my sort of treat to myself was to eat this thing. I think that's the first really conscious moment, or the moment when I'm conscious of actually really enjoying taste uh, and the impact of it. And the whole, that you know, the whole thing. It, was, it really was. I can <laughs> recommend it. Keep you but, skiing all day, I can yeah. imagine. And, and you said you obviously lived all over yeah. the world. What, what were mealtimes like in that stage of your life? Mealtimes? Yeah. Oh, very conventional. I mean... We we lived a pretty English life wherever we were, I think. So, you know, it was breakfast, lunch and dinner. Dinner, definitely. <laughs> and and who, was, who was doing the cooking? Um, well, when we were in Africa, where I was, I was born in Nigeria, then we lived in Sierra Leone. I don't really remember that. In fact, I don't remember that. But then again, we were in Ghana when I was a teenager and um, we had a cook because everyone, all, all expats did in those days. In Ghana, very good cook, actually. Um, and there's always that thing in, in, in that sort of world where there's a, a bit of an effort to bring Surrey into Africa. So, you know, anybody who comes to stay has to bring a pot of Marmite. And people drink drank carnation milk, do you remember that, which yes, didn't yeah. go off, so you'd have a drop of carnation milk in your, in your tea. But by the time I was a teenager, my mum particularly got more, a bit more interested in local food, so we had sort of slightly more exotic stuff. When we were in Switzerland, I think my mum did the cooking mostly, and Malta, where we lived between the two, again, I think we, I think we had a cook. We were very lucky, I suppose. Um, and what about school food? You, you came over to the UK to to board at Ample Hall. Yeah, first prep school actually when we were living in Switzerland, and that was a real shock, I have to say. We were very lucky in, uh, for a period in Switzerland where. We lived in a wonderful big old chalet-style villa just outside Geneva, which had belonged to an old lady who'd recently died, and she'd left it to all her relatives. 
and they, for some legal reason, they couldn't sell it for a while. I don't know, there was some quirk in the law. And so we moved in. It was much more sort of grand than we were used to, but we moved in for the interim and had a wonderful vegetable garden and a permanent gardener who lived in the lodge. So we just ate incredibly well and healthily while we were living there. And then being sent back to a prep school in Sussex from that, as I say, came as a shock. And my main sort of horror memory is the porridge because they didn't stir it properly. So as well as this rather hideous, gruel-like, thin grey stuff, every so often you'd come across a great sort of ball of undigested and unmixed oats. Uh, and it, I, well, I, I have never, people tell me porridge is delicious. Maybe it is, but I'm not trying it <laughs> again. It it's absolutely, <laughs> absolute. And actually, it's like the simple thing when I went to, to Ampleforth as a treat. They would, a so-called treat, the first night back, they'd give you baked beans. And again, I can't eat baked beans now. Because well, although I really enjoyed my time there, it's sort of associated, I think, somewhere in my mind and my gut with the first day, the end of the holidays, first day back at school. Um, and what about you? You then went up to Cambridge to read English. What mm-hmm. was the food like at that stage? Were you eating in hall or were you cooking for yourself? There was. I, I, I used to have, I, I made a rule for myself just to keep some kind of grip on academic life, that however late I was out in the night, I'd always get to hall for breakfast. And there were a sort of group of us. And when I think back, we were sort of like trainee clubmen. We'd sit there, <laughs> you know, probably with a tweed jacket on. And you could get the local news agent to deliver the papers to your rooms in college. So we'd all appear with our Timeses or our Telegraphs and sit there rather sort of, rather grandly, probably in total <laughs> silence, and eat bacon and eggs and sort of traditional English stuff. But Cambridge, of course, was, because it's an undergraduate city, it was a student city, it was absolutely full of cheap eateries, some of them really nasty, which we did occasionally. <laughs> There's a place called The Whim, just across from Trinity, which I think is now a rather smart dress shop, but you could eat for practically nothing there but you paid for it. Um, and then there were occasional, there's one very rich undergraduate in the college who liked to take us to a Chinese restaurant. Peking Duck was the huge treat. And this is you know, it's late 70s or mid 70s. So, you know, the, the sort of um, diverse quality of English food hadn't, or the food that's available in this country hadn't really arrived. And, and something like a Chinese restaurant, Peking Duck was an absolutely sort of massive treat. And, and also a, an Italian restaurant in the market square called Don Pasquale's, which again was thought to be very upmarket. You only went there if you, you know, you had a big event to celebrate. And I went back there. It was absolutely revolting the other day, but, um, but, but mind you, you know, had several decades had elapsed since my time. Is it still there. Um, Liv and I both at Cambridge. Do you remember Don Pasquale being there, Liv? I don't, but I, I think much you, of my time at Cambridge is a blur. You're quite a lot younger than me. When were you there? Um, uh, I was 2006-9. Yeah, well, I'm talking 1976 <laughs> I went up. So. those restaurants feel like they've probably so, been so there probably for, still for a while. Um, and, and, of course, lots of pubs. And also, sorry, finally, and most weirdly of all in retrospect, something called the Pit Club, which was an extraordinary institution. It was like a London, like White's or something, but it was for undergraduates. And it had all the sort of rules that a London club had. You know, you had to wear a tie, you could be blackballed, um, you couldn't take women in except at sort of certain specified times and things. And it served 
good nursery food. <laughs> um, and a barman was famous for being able to mix the most wonderful Bloody Marys. So if you wanted to pretend to be a sort of elderly gent, which occasionally I'm ashamed to say we did quite a lot. <laughs> um, anyway, the pit, club, the pit club I think came to grief because it it had rather a beautiful building and, and eventually it ran out of money. And I think it's now a, a pizza restaurant. Um, a Pizza Express. Yeah, pizza called, Express, all right. Express. It presumed had gone by the time you came up, had it? No. No? No, no, it's still, no. I think it's still no. going. I think they do not allow women in. Did they let women in? They didn't in our day. But, uh... <laughs> there, was, there was definitely a campaign to, to let women in. Um, and after after you graduated, Edward, you joined ITN on a graduate programme. What was... Presumably you were living in London at that point. Was, what was, what yeah, was food yeah. like at that stage of life? Um, I married very young. My first wife was perfectly decent cook, so I had a sort of normal home life, as it were. But it was also the days of when commercial television really was a licence to print money in the famous phrase. And ITN was awash with DOSH. So lunch would usually be at the Gay Hazar or Bertarelli's in Charlotte Street or something. We would spend inordinate amounts of money eating disgracefully well. There is a famous and probably apocryphal story of a crew, a television crew that was sent to film a boat that was sinking in the Thames and they turned up and it was still afloat. So they said, we'll go and have lunch. And of course, by the time they finally came back, um, it had sunk. And when they were reprimanded for this, they said, we were waiting for the souffle to rise. <laughs> it was it was, it was, was strange that you went straight from being a you know, slightly impoverished undergraduate, um, eating in places like the Wim, and suddenly you just, because it was at the, the studios were in Well Street, so right in the heart of eating land near Soho and Charlotte Street and all that. Mm. Um, and it was not just sort of allowed, it was positively encouraged to go and have as much <laughs> fun as you could. Um, it was partly that rather, a culture I rather miss, where you had lunch with people and you found things out. Mm. Um, which is, Do you think that's slightly sort of I think that's gone by the wayside? Disappeared now, hasn't it? It's yeah. very unusual, and it's also very unusual to drink at lunch, mm. which we certainly did. I mean, it was quite a shock finding that most people in the newsroom were drunk for most of the day, uh, including the newsreaders who presented news at ten. <laughs> um, the great late, I mean, really great, and one shouldn't, one shouldn't sort of libel him. But Alistair Burnett, I don't know whether you remember, your may all be too young, but he was a sort of really big figure. He'd been editor of the Economist, the Daily Express, and he was the presenter of News at Ten. And he would open his bottle of whiskey at about ten in the morning and not stop. So it was pretty sybaritic. In, in Sounds great fun. <laughs> it was, it, it was <laughs> fantastic fun. I cannot deny it. It really was. And you spent many years working as a as a foreign correspondent. Was the food memorable in the places you were sent to, or something of a a, a second thought? I think it was. Well, I mean, it, you you tended to live very well as an ITN, particularly an ITN correspondent. But so, so but you were very very much under pressure. So meals were not a sort of thing you could often spend much time doing. But I do certainly. I went to Beirut in the war during the eighties. And I do remember sort of being introduced to wonderful, uh, well, particularly Lebanese Middle Eastern food with that sort of French element to it. I was based in the States for three years, which was also a revelation because we, we think of American food as all burgers and sort of uh, fast food. But actually, um, Washington is in an area full of wonderful farmland in Virginia and Maryland. You've got the Chesapeake Bay full of fish. So you could actually eat rather well. And the sort of the, the big... Dishes of fresh food were, were again a sort of 
um, rather a, a good treat. And then I suppose a real treat. I was Paris correspondent for a bit over a year for the BBC. And it wasn't so much that one could go out to a lovely restaurant every evening because I had uh, three children at the time. But the great lunch culture, again, was still very much alive then in Paris. There's no point in staying in the office and ringing people up because everyone else was out to lunch. Um, and, you know, we'd go round to one of those wonderful local brasseries that you have in Paris and eat coffee de canard with a pichet of red or something, which was uh, very civilised. <laughs> and you spent much of the late 90s and noughties presenting um, various flagship BBC shows, including Radio 4's Today. What was food like then? Had the, had the culture changed? Was you, were you kind of going out for lunch less? Or? Oh, much less. And I mean, today is a weird sort of thing for your eating Yeah, how does it work? Habits. Do you have breakfast before you go you on have, air? You or? have, well, they, they bring, I mean, it's actually, I was going to say in those days, but it's slightly different now, but it's similar. There was a green room next to the studio and they would bring in, frankly, disgusting croissants uh, and limp toast. And you could, it's funny today because because there are two of you, you can actually pop out from time to time. So you'd pop out into the green room, have a bit of limp toast, and there would be, you know, Tony Blair or John Prescott or whoever it was. Do you, do you have toast with them or, or yeah, you separate? Would. Yeah, which, well, you dash out, say, you know, morning minister, I'll talk to you in a moment or two, you know, <laughs> grab a bit of toast and go back in again. Um, but it, 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 so it was, it was, a, it was a sort of place of interest and gossip and chat. But I wouldn't have said the breakfast was particularly <laughs> wonderful and the other thing was you would uh the evenings you have dinner quite early because going to bed early and not drinking too much were absolutely essential mm. um I, I had the lesson was born home to me when on one occasion i wasn't on shift the next morning and we had an old friend around to dinner and i think the last armagnac went down at one o'clock in the morning or something and at four thirty, the phone rang and a producer said I won't say which presenter, had forgotten they were on shift and they were in France. And I said, well, I wouldn't drive a car, but... I'll present a city. And I did, I did it, but, it, God, it was hell. Um, <laughs> that does sound intense. So, so <laughs> one or two people complimented me on the ferocity of my interview. <laughs> my absolute vile hangover. Um, but, um, so, has, it, has it been liberating then since to be able to to, 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 to go out with wild abandon? I suppose so. Although, if I think of the thing about today is, you know, you don't do every day. You do a bunch of shifts and then you have... And, and people think you're there every day because it's such a sort of prominent show. But there was plenty of time to party between times. <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, yeah. And Edward, could you talk a little bit about, um, obviously, religion is large, <sighs> plays a large role in your life could you talk about the relationship between religion and food and how you see that because obviously food oh, does play Gosh. a large role in that's a theological question isn't it I mean the first thing that springs to mind is the rule which I remember not enjoying at all as a child that you can't eat before communion so you had to go to church feeling hungry um, which wasn't much fun and I slightly do that now because if, if I'm doing the Sunday program I can just about uh, if I'm fast, get in my car and get to Mass in Brixton Hill at 8.30, which again is Mass without having eaten beforehand, which is, I'm sure it's good for me or something, but it's, <laughs> it's not much fun. But I don't think I, I don't think I, I mean, mostly in my sort of 
experience it's about fasting rather than enjoying food religion i mean i know that's not true of all religions but i think in certainly in the, the catholic tradition it's not eating or not eating chocolate during lent or giving up booze for advent or whatever it is is more prominent than actually enjoying food i mean i suppose christmas and things and easter you have good meals um but i think that's as much part of culture as it is of of religion so it's not it's not something not an association i have to say i particularly think of is that fasting something you still observe now or has the way you treat your faith changed over the years i'm afraid i'm much less um rigorous about that than i than i used to be <laughs> i do every so often try and give up something for lent but i think that's uh you know one year i gave up twiglets which <laughs> which why <laughs> well because i thought I would really miss them, and, and did I you, did, did oh. but I mean, I got through it. It was okay. <laughs> um. Um, and your new book, it charts how debate has shifted in the UK on, on a broad range of issues, um, sexuality is mentioned here, nuclear weapons. What about on food? Do you think the way that British culture approaches food well, has I th- changed I think a lot? One of the striking things doing the book was the way that the religious landscape has so, become so much more diverse. I did a bit of background research into the way the BBC covered religion back when the Sunday programme started. And right up until the 1960s, the entire staff of the Religious Affairs Department were ordained clergymen in the Church of England, which is quite a thought when you, you know. And one of the earliest, the first, I think, non-Christian element we found in the archive was a Muslim community leader who was concerned about mixed bathing in uh, schools and didn't like it at all. And when that was broadcast, I think 74, there are about a quarter of a million Muslims in the country, now there are nearly four, I think the figure is. Mm. So that's completely changed the religious character of, of the country. And with that, I think, has come a kind of diverse eating mm. culture, hasn't it, which we can all celebrate and love. I mean, it's... It's wonderful. London was a pretty run-down place back in the 70s. It had a, still had a slight sort of austere post-war feel to it. And, and you know, we, well, now you can eat what you like here, can't you? And it's usually good and wonderful. And are there, so, are there certain, you, you, you live in, in South London, are there yeah. certain restaurants that you, you like to go to? Um, yes, there are. Do you want to know what they are? There's, yes, please, I mean, yes. The one, what are sort of very good local is called Brunswick House. I don't know whether you know that, which is just opposite the Spies, just south of Vauxhall Bridge. And it was, it was a great sort of party centre, I think, in the early 19th century. So you eat in the ballroom. And it's also a salvage place. So it's surrounded by things that you could buy, sort of vast millers and statues and so forth. And it has extremely, extremely good food. And it's not a bad bicycle ride from home. So that, that's also <laughs> yeah, Also a pub called the Canton Arms, which is extremely good down in South Lambeth Road. It's quite a fun area because it's little Portugal. So there's all sorts of delis around where we are, uh, which, is, which is fun. You've spoken about your diagnosis of cancer. How has that influenced your life? I mean, without wanting to be flippant about it, has, no. it, has it changed the way you eat or the way... You look at the pleasures of eating or anything like that? Um, not Well, it's a very strange thing, prostate cancer. You don't suffer at all, at least at my stage you don't, from the disease in a, or in a way that you're aware of. You do, however, 
suffer side effects from some of the drugs you take to deal with it. So, I mean, one of which is, is hormone therapy, and that tends to make you put on weight. So I found I've had to, I have put on weight, but I found I've had to watch it a bit more than I did um, before I was under treatment. Beyond that, not really. I mean, it's it, it, it's still nice to get pleasure from the physical world. And I mean, I, I think I'm very lucky not to have had, I've, I have had um, uh, chemotherapy, and, and that puts a bit of a dampener on your fun. But most of the treatment so far has been relatively light, if you like. It's involved taking pills more than anything else. And as I say, it does make you put on weight, but it doesn't stop your pleasure in food and it doesn't stop you drinking nice red wine. Uh, at least nobody's told me to do that yet. Um, so, long may that continue. So long may that continue. Um, I think as I go further and further down the road, it may become more restrictive because it's a kind of a war of attrition prostate cancer if you've got it metastatically which i have which means they can't actually cure it it's like it's just endlessly fighting a battle and when one lot of drugs run out as being effective then they try another lot so as you go down that road i think the drugs are likely to become more kind of intrusive in terms of what they mean for your daily life but so far it hasn't been too bad and what about at home do you, do you like to cook? What's, I'm what's very much privileged like in having a wife who really enjoys cooking. What does she What does she like to cook? Oh, pretty much. I mean, pretty much anything you can think of. We have a house in southwest France, so the Elizabeth David French provincial cooking gets a lot of investigation. And actually, although I, I'm, I'm, ter- I'm, I'm afraid I'm very old, not old school, yeah, old school, awful, <laughs> hopeless about it, but even I've come to enjoy in France, the pleasure of shopping, which is something I never thought I would enjoy. But, you know, there's, there's, there's one market in our village on Wednesdays and there's another big one in a nearby town on Saturdays. So you, you, you never sort of get a, like a sort of a cardo shop or anything. You just go down to the market. And, and sometimes the things you wanted aren't there, but something else is there. And the whole business of food becomes incredibly good fun you know you we realized we were in real trouble when we we were having lunch and we were talking about supper and you know it's, it's that sort of you know you're you're always making choices and and you're always um struck by whatever's suddenly in season you know one day you'll go down the stores are full of asparagus and then you want asparagus the next week and it will be out of season and, and you just go with the flow in that sense and i have actually when I say I don't cook at all, I, I, I love mushrooms, so I buy fresh mushrooms and cook them for breakfast. And boudin noir, you know, French version of um, it's, it's sort of platonic, sort of um, ideal of black pudding because it's technically the same thing, but it's a different order of being really. So I do give myself little treats like that. Do you have that for breakfast mm, as well? Yeah, boudin noir omelette is. It's really, <laughs> but and also things you know things which are treats here, like oysters, which are not. I mean, they're still a treat, but they cost so little. And and you know you go to a stall in the market and there's whole different fine de clair and you know all sorts, and that's fun too. Um, so yeah, France has made me a bit more food aware. I think. What is comfort food for you? Presumably not beans on toast. Not beans on toast. Very much not beans on toast. Uh, I'm afraid I'm... 
part, partly because of the, the cats thing and, and not wanting to put on way too much, I'm not allowed potatoes very often. So when I get a chance, <laughs> that's a treat. What's your ideal way of having potato? Oh, God. Well, actually, I suppose we had it last night, um, cooked in duck fat, which is really good. It's delicious. <laughs> and Edward, to finish, we, we like to ask um, what your desert island meal would be, which is kind of what, what would be your ultimate meal? Well, I suppose if I'm on desert island, it's probably hot, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, I suppose the question is less yeah. like actually on the island, but if you could just pick one one meal. I mean, I think I think that that somebody, and I, I've never been able to find out. Well, again, who it is said that heaven would be eating oysters to the sound of trumpets, which I can go with. <laughs> but that means having the trumpets on the island in this place. Edward, thank you very much for joining us on Table Talk. <laughs> Ne fuis pas, vois comme nos destins sont différents.